This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Welcome to Step 1 Success Stories by Physio, Episode 14. I just decided to start doing a shotgun approach, just using as many resources as I can, probably on two to three times speed, and then hoping that something stuck. I guess for me, it was just repetition at a fast pace as opposed to someone who takes three hours to watch a one-hour lecture. I would rather watch it three times on three times speed, and I found that that worked better for me. You're listening to Step 1 Success Stories by Physio, the playbook of those who dominated the USMLE. If you want to learn how to excel on Step 1 and get into the residency of your choice, then you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join the thousands of others who have mastered step one concepts using physio.com. Hey everyone, welcome to today's episode. Today we interview Bronson Fong, who is a third year medical student. And to help me with this interview, I'm here with my co-host, Rhett Thompson. How's it going, man? It's going so good. What's the latest with you? Ooh, latest. Well, let's see. Last night, I watched my three kids without my wife's help for the first time since Margot was born. <laughs> Margot was born on the 4th of July, so she's about a month old. <laughs> it's just kind of nerve wracking because I didn't know if she was going to take the bottle. It was like the first time she'd ever taken a bottle. And so I was like, oh, please take the bottle, please take the bottle. And for the first like hour and a half, she was screaming and would not take the bottle. And I was like losing oh. my mind. <laughs> oh my gosh. But eventually things worked out and I got her to take the bottle. And yeah, it was a, it was a fun night. Oh man, gosh, I feel for you. Babies are the worst. I just went on a camp out last night and we've got this 11 month old and she just screamed, just woke up screaming stupid early in the morning, middle of the night. And we could not get her to stop screaming. In fact, the campsite next to us packed up and left because my baby was screaming. <laughs> are you serious? And, uh, and I don't blame them. It's the worst. And I just feel bad. I just kept playing the scenario in my mind. Like are these angry campers going to come and like approach me? And light your tent on fire. Yeah. And then I was just thinking, man, if they're ready to fight, I am ready to rumble. Because (laughs) if you look at a parent carrying a screaming child and it's irritating you, just assume that that parent is seeing red. Like, (laughs) don't touch them, you know? So with that said, I felt really bad. I was also angry, but (laughs) we just started the Dutch oven breakfast early. (laughs) That's fun. Yeah. No, kids are fun, but it's definitely a roller coaster at times. It is. It's a pleasant way to explain it. <laughs> Theme park analogy. Yeah. So today's guest, as Michael mentioned, is Bronson Fogg. He's 24 years old and he's a third year medical student at Louisiana State Health Sciences Center in New Orleans. And he's interested in going to orthopedic surgery and he scored in the 250s on step one. Now, what was so interesting about this interview is just how organized Bronson was. And he maximized his efficiency. He had an Excel spreadsheet that he would keep track of the things that he was doing and the results. And he would reflect on those. And it really seems like a smart way to keep track of your productivity. And his overall approach to step one and coursework was just awesome. So I'm excited for you to listen. Let's bring him on. All right, Bronson, welcome to our show, man. We're super excited to have you here today. How you doing? 
Great. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, we're thrilled to have you on. Like we do with all of our guests, you could tell us a little bit about yourself and what got you interested in medicine. So my name is Bronson Fong. I'm from Slidell, Louisiana, and I'm currently an L3 medical student at Louisiana State University Health Sciences Center in New Orleans. I just kind of grew up around medicine. So my dad's an orthopedic surgeon. So I always kind of had that option there. But I actually studied economics in college and was really between investment banking and medicine and ended up choosing medicine because that's just where I kind of saw myself. I saw myself helping patients and helping to bridge the data gap in medicine, just using like statistical analysis and the new EHR systems. Very interesting. I don't think we've had someone on our show yet who uh, has that background, you know, the statistics side of things and financial side of things. What kind of swayed you into medicine rather than that field? It just always felt comfortable. And growing up around my dad, I sometimes shadowed him in the office and worked in the office. And I just saw how he could impact so greatly someone's life in just 10 minutes of his own time. You know, he performs a carpal tunnel surgery, possibly done under local anesthetics, and he can relieve years or maybe even decades of suffering for this patient. And it just seeing the excitement that patients have for the things he can do really makes me want to go into medicine and affect people in the same way he does. That's so cool. That's, yeah, that's way awesome. And it's cool that you've got somebody that's, you know, like your father that's interested in something, shows you the inner workings of orthopedic surgery. And if I understand correctly, that's what you're interested in going into, right? I am. So I really want to go into a field with instant gratification. And I also want to go into a field where the outcomes are more dependent on the physician rather than the patient. I also want to provide comprehensive care for my patient's issues and be able to treat their conditions effectively. While I'm keeping an open mind and discovering new things every single day now that I'm doing rotations. I think that's pretty much the goal right now is to pursue orthopedic surgery, but keep an open mind to other specialties and just see what happens. Yeah, that's awesome. Let's take a little step back and start from the beginning of medical school. So you had this background in finances. You decided you want to go to medical school and you got in. So take us back to that moment in time, like the first few days or the first few weeks of medical school and tell us what that was like for you. So honestly, the first week was absolutely great. It's just kind of like going to high school or college again, where no one knows each other and everyone's just super friendly and trying to make friends. But quickly afterwards, like during the second week, it was a huge learning curve for me because I didn't know anything. And one thing I remember is even the second month of medical school, learning that there's four chambers to the heart. And that's obvious to everyone, including lay people. And I did not know that because it was just not a requirement for medical school to take anatomy or physiology. So I knew everything about physics, organic chemistry, and even biochemistry, but I knew nothing about the human body. I struggled a lot my first semester and it was actually pretty bad. I applied to three jobs and in investment banking over the winter break, got two of them, and eventually decided to stick out my second semester. And I'm really glad I stayed. Wow. So you, <laughs> you were like considering dropping out. You had literally applied to other jobs thinking, okay, I'm not going to do this anymore because I'm not, I'm not meant for this. Is that right? Absolutely. So I mean, like I did very well in economics and was actually third in the world for a Bloomberg MCAT, you could say. It's just really hard from going to something you're really proficient in to being probably like one of the worst students starting out. And it's just like a reset for me just getting humbled down. Exactly. That's interesting. Me and Michael had a buddy that we studied with all of first year and second year. And at the tail end of first year, we find out that he's getting accepted to the FBI, which is like really hard, a really hard, rigorous application process that often takes a long, long time. And he was just flying through it and basically just got to the end of it and was like, 
okay, I'm going to turn down this this invitation and then opted to stay into medical school. So it's kind of interesting. So now he's like in emergency medicine, super cool guy. We're glad we kept him and, and we're excited that you made that decision, stayed with medicine. That's awesome. It makes me appreciate medicine more. So now I actively look for the things that really make me happy as opposed to the things that upset me or the alternatives where I could be right now. And I think I'm a lot happier now that I decided to stay and made that concrete decision too. Let's talk about that a little bit more. Maybe you could mention some of the obstacles that you overcame during the first semester and how did you overcome that? It obviously sounds like it was a challenge, but ultimately you got through it. How did you do that? I think that a lot of engineers and math majors and I guess econometric majors too struggle with medical school at first because in those fields, we don't really learn rote memorization. We don't learn just fat rapid recall. We learn processes. We learn cycles. We think in a different way. And it was a struggle. So I went from like handwriting all my notes because everyone kept saying that something about like writing and recall, but I really struggled my first three months. And the second month, I just decided to start doing a shotgun approach, just using as many resources as I can, probably on two to three times speed, and then hoping that something stuck. I guess for me, it was just repetition at a fast pace, as opposed to someone who takes three hours to watch a one hour lecture. I would rather watch it three times on three times speed. And I found that that worked better for me. Interesting. So why did you make that decision instead of, I don't know, just like going to class and listening to your your professors? Why did you decide to start using other resources? I didn't really know what would be considered high yield and what would be considered low yield. And I felt that a lot of outside resources kind of condensed that for me. And I knew that if I finished these resources, I'd be able to do well on the test because it's easier to plan out. Because, you know, like some in-house lectures take, let's say, 10 hours to study and other ones take like one hour to study. But I wouldn't really know that balance of which ones to study more or less because I just wasn't exposed to it. But I knew that if I spent an hour a day using some other resource that I'd be able to cover everything before the final. Yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. And I'm really glad you brought this up because a lot of medical students in their first and second year experience just that very same thing. We haven't really had a chance to talk about that on our podcast. So as you say, like some lectures can take a long time to prepare for and wrap your mind around. And I remember in classes just not having, like spending a lot of time on the wrong lectures. Like I remember after taking the exam being like, oh, I wish that I just totally ditched that lecture, like didn't even study that one. And they just focused on these other lectures that were way higher yield. And it's hard because at least at our school, and I'm sure that most schools are this way, each lecture gets this 50 minute block, regardless of how high yield it is and how important that information is and whether or not you're going to get tested on it and whether or not the course directors will test you on any of that material. And so that makes a lot of sense that you almost used external resources as a way of kind of buffering that pitfall of wasting your time on the wrong class lectures. Is that fair to say? Yes. So it kind of balanced everything out for me because I knew that if I got through, let's say a chapter of BRS, it would be equally as effective as another chapter of BRS. Can you talk to us a little bit more about some of the specifics of the resources that you used? So first year, I used a lot of BRS, and I think I used all the board review series and did all their questions. And then for anatomy, I used, I think it was Gray's Anatomy, that a question bank, and I found that really helpful. The things that helped me in anatomy were just going to the lab every single day with five friends or so, and we would kind of just pin random different things and quiz each other on the things we pinned. Second semester, I started getting into Anki. And just started doing the anatomy and physiology portions of the Anki, but not yet the clinical or medical side of it. 
But I think second year is when I really kind of got my shit together. So before every single block, I would watch physio. And I found physio extremely helpful for me because I did not do well in anatomy. So it was basically an anatomy review for me. And then it also reviewed the points I was weak in in physiology. And it really set me up for a good subject block performance. That's awesome. That's great to hear. So how did things turn out after you had used that approach? Yeah, so I started with physio and that would be usually the Saturday or Sunday before the block started. Then the next two days I'd use Wars and Beyond and just watch it rapidly and just try to pick up as much as I can just going at that speed. Then I'd probably do Pathoma. And then for the next three days I would do Anki. So I don't do Anki every single day. I just kind of brute force it because I think it's a very good way of learning a lot of material quickly. And I just made sure to do every single card at least four times before my midterm or final. That ended up working out well for me. So I would do all that to prepare for the midterm and just be done with the block by midterm. And then between midterm and finals, I'd use USMLE RX, the question bank. And I really liked that question bank because it basically takes out snippets from first aid. So I'm probably one of the very few students who almost never use first aid. I think I opened it up twice. But doing the RX question bank, with those screenshots of the first aid pages really helped me out. And I ended up honoring all my classes and I attribute it to Physio, Boards Beyond, Pathoma, and Rx. You know, I think that a lot of people feel like they have to use first aid. And that's cool to hear that you say, you know, you didn't really use it. I think using Rx is a great alternative. You know, it's kind of like the application of first aid and it helps you really see how these different concepts apply. It's also really cool that you used so many video resources. You just kind of used them all, it sounds like. And we're obviously glad to hear that you used Physio and found it helpful. That's really awesome. I just think that you really don't get much out of passive learning. But if I see it in a different way a second time, the same material, then I think that really helps the recall and keeps me interested in the content. Okay, so you talked about Anki as well. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that? Did you use like a specific deck or did you make your own cards? How did you use that? So I use Zonkey. It correlates well with the Boards and Beyond series. And I also use the Pepper deck, which correlates well with Sketchy. And Sketchy is where you learn all your drugs and your microbes. I did not use it every single day. Like I said, I just kind of made sure that I did all the cards for a certain block at least four to five times before the test. And I would just have like Anki days that I was kind of like just miserable, just in the library in my little cubicle and probably brute forced between 1,000 and 4,000 cards in that one day. So that was just like eight hours straight or whatever of just doing that. And then the other days I would just do my video resources and I would be a lot happier, obviously, doing those. But you just learn so much through Zonkey, even if it is just repetition and recall. The way that you did that goes against conventional wisdom, which is to use Anki every single day and just use that space repetition model. And so the fact that you did it in such a different way and succeeded was really cool. How do you know that you were able to do each card four times? Is it because you just took the entire deck and then got through it in that day? And then you did that another day and then knew that you got through all the cards? For the most part, yes. So I record everything that I do in an Excel spreadsheet, just so that I can see how productive I'm being and what I haven't hit in a while. And I also date it. I think usually the decks are labeled like anatomy, then physiology, then like some other stuff. And I would just do the entire deck and I would just set up my review ahead to like 100 every single time. And I would just try to hit those decks. Okay, gotcha. So a lot of students haven't used Anki or are just starting first year right about now. And even those who are experienced with Anki aren't completely certain of all the things you can do with it. So 
when you would do like your first pass through all of your Zonky deck, there's different settings. You can put it like, this was easy, this was medium, or let's see this again. What would you do to ensure that you would see it again the next time you were going to like blitz through all those 5,000 questions? First time you do a Nanki deck, no matter if you get it right the first time or if you get it wrong the first time, you're going to see it in four days. And then after that, if you get it wrong one time, you're going to see it the next day. So like tomorrow. But for me, all I did was I always put review 100 days ahead and that would always make sure that I saw it. Because I think the maximum limit or whatever is 90 days between basically mastering a card and you needing to review it. That's nice. Yeah, I know a lot of people struggle because there are so many different decks out there. It's like, do I use this deck or that deck? Do I make my own deck? So it's cool to hear that you use that one. I mainly tell people not to make their own decks because I just don't think that there's enough time in medical school to dedicate to making your own deck. So I mean, if it works for you, great. But for me, I'd rather watch more videos or do more questions than spend the time to make my own deck. And to be honest, if I spend all that time making a deck, I'd probably know the material really well and not need the deck just by virtue of me having to break it down into cards, all the different intricacies. Whatever works for you, I guess that's the main thing with medical school is everyone studies differently. Okay, so you had also mentioned Sketchy at some point. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I know they have the Sketchy Path, the Farm, and the Micro. Did you use all three or just one or two? Talk us through that. I used all of Sketchy Micro and I used that religiously. And I actually felt that the question, they like a question bank now on Sketchy of a thousand micro questions. I actually found that pretty helpful. I thought it was very comparable to the Pepper deck on Zonky or Anki. I also used the pharmacology for the most part, and I didn't really use physiology or the uh, pathology, Sketchy pathology. I felt like one of the lowest yield things I did while studying for even step one was to do the pharmacology and pathology question banks. It was like 2000 questions and it was pretty low yield for me on my test. What questions exactly are you referring to there? So whenever you buy a Sketchy subscription, you now have about 3,000 questions. So 1,000 questions on Sketchy Micro, 1,000 questions on Sketchy Farm, and then 1,000 questions for Sketchy Physiology. I think they just released it maybe in March. So it's relatively new, but definitely do the micro questions. I would probably not do the pharmacology or physiology questions. The path questions, right? Path questions, yes. Yeah, that sounds pretty standard. You know, in the past, I think most people have at least over the past couple of years, have been using Sketchy Micro quite a bit and then Sketchy Farm quite a bit. But it seems like for the most part, people aren't as excited about the pathology. Let's dive into a little bit more of after that first year and going forward in your second year. Did things kind of stay the same for you or did you transition and use other resources? Can you walk us through that a little bit more? Things kind of stay the same for me. I guess second year was actually when I used all those resources. First year, I was kind of just using BRS and Grey's Anatomy. So I didn't really start transitioning to the videos until second year. But I guess in January is when I started my Excel spreadsheet. So I basically made an Excel spreadsheet with all the run times for everything. And then I started tracking when I last watched the videos and try to get every single video at least three times before my dedicated started. And I also wanted to complete the USMLE RX question bank in its entirety before dedicated started. Were you able to do that? For the most part, yes. So what I'm curious about is that Excel spreadsheet. So you would take these notes on what you would do and keep track of how productive you were. Would you reflect back on this spreadsheet and look at your notes? And would that guide you? Would you review it? Yeah. So basically, because I wasn't doing the Anki every single day, I wanted to make sure that I was covering all the content I needed to and not just the ones that I found more interesting. I was just basically keeping me honest. I say like, oh, I didn't study neuro in a month. So why don't I rewatch those videos this weekend and maybe do some monkey cards. 
And it kept me honest on a day-to-day basis because I really wanted to hit, let's say, eight hours of productivity per day. I guess like just reflecting back, you would just feel a little bit guilty if you didn't hit that. And that's very manageable to do, seeing how almost everyone works eight hours a day in the labor force, I guess you could say. One of the things that students often find very difficult is knowing when to abandon a resource or abandon just a protocol that they've started because it's not working for them. And your method of using an Excel spreadsheet to just, like you say, keep you honest, that seems like super beneficial in that way, but also just like keeping track of what resources you're using. And I just imagine that that's helpful in letting you know if things are working for you. Is that fair to say? It is. And for the Rx questions, I would keep track of my percentage, correct? So I'd know that if it was being productive. So I think that if you get more than 85% of your questions correct on Rx or UWorld, I think it's time to switch to a different question bank just because you're not learning as much as you could. If I saw myself, like let's say in endocrine, getting a 50% on my questions, that would be something I definitely need to review so that I can prepare adequately for step one. So let's transition a little bit and talk more about your dedicated period now. Maybe just walk us through like a typical day for you during dedicated. Okay. So once dedicated started, I stopped using Rx and I stopped doing Anki just because I found that I didn't want to really do anything repetitive. And I started doing 120 UWorld questions a day. So that's three blocks of 40. And after every single block of questions, which takes you an hour timed, I would spend about an hour reviewing it and reviewing the wrong answers too. And one of the great things about UWorld versus USMLE Rx is that the UWorld explanations are a little bit shorter and less off topic. So while I might have learned more with USMLE RX, I was more efficient with UWorld. And I think that doing three blocks and reviewing for three hours after each block, so that'll take you about six hours, I think that adequately prepares you for the real exam, which is seven hours. That was the main thing I made sure I did every single day was the 120 UWorld questions. Then I would try to do about eight hours of passive video watching. And most of the time this was on two to three times speed, so it did not take me eight hours to do. And that would just be rewatching Pathoma, Boards and Beyond, Sketchy, and sometimes doing question banks too. Like I told you, Sketchy had a few question banks. And yeah, I think that's just about it. Sometimes watching a lot of YouTube videos. So I found Dirty USMLE, very high yield. And that would just be kind of like my treat to myself because it's very entertaining and you learned a lot from it. Yeah, I don't think we've heard that one mentioned before. That's interesting. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Basically, I think he's our resident. He just makes very high yield videos on YouTube and it's all free too. On just like various things that students find difficult. So I mean, like there's a whole bunch of mnemonics that he makes and they're not safe for work. They're pretty dirty, but you memorize them because of that. Yeah, that's nice. It's free. I'm sure that's appealing. (laughs) It's uh, kind of the nature of being a medical student. Just dropping money on all these resources kind of sucks sometimes, you know? So one question that I've got for you is, When you were reviewing these question blocks during your dedicated study time, what would that look like? Were you taking notes? Were you obviously weren't creating flashcards because you ditched Anki by this point, but what did that review look like? For the most part, I would just make a huge Word document and each bullet point would be a question. And I would just put the pertinent parts of the patient presentation. And then I would just put the correct answer underneath and why some of the wrong answers were wrong. And if I got the question right, I'd highlight the first few words in green. And if I got it wrong, I'd highlight it in red. I try to review this question list that I created at least once a week, usually on a Saturday after I was done for the week. Wow, that's really interesting too. So we've got this Excel spreadsheet idea and now this Word document. I don't think we've had anyone mention something like that either. So it sounds like that was kind of taking the place of 
making your own flashcards or something along those lines. It was like a bullet point for each question in a Word document that you would review. Is that right? Correct. And I guess if it were a difficult topic, I would just look up some more details and try to expound on why this answer was correct and just describe it in layman's turn for myself. And you would have every question in that Word document, either green or red, you said, right? Depending on if you got it right or wrong. At first, yes. But towards the end, if I knew that I already covered the material in a previous question, I wouldn't write it down. Because sometimes they have the same patient presentation and they have the same answer, basically. So towards the end, I got a little bit lazier. And for my second pass, I definitely didn't take any notes. And would you try to keep this like one line super concise or how exactly did you go about doing that? It was pretty concise. So usually the patient presentation would be one line. Sometimes the explanations for why the correct answer was correct would be maybe even four lines, five lines. It was more to make sure that I could answer questions in the future from multiple facets. So like I might even put like this answer would be correct if this person had like, let's say COPD or something random. How long would it take you to review that document? Like, can you talk us through the review process of that document when you would do it and how long would it take you and the specifics there? Probably take me about an hour, 30 minutes for 20 pages of the document. And I think towards the end, it got to be about 80 pages. It wasn't like really an everyday thing. It was more of just like at the end of the week, if I hit all my benchmarks and goals, then I would review it. Okay, so you talked about UWorld and how you're using that a little bit. I was curious, I'm not sure if you mentioned this, but were you doing those three blocks back-to-back, timed, random, and then you would, after that, do the three hours of reviewing? No, so I would actually do a block of 40 questions and I would review it right afterwards. And then I would do another block of 40 questions and review it afterwards. And then sometimes I would take a lunch break. Sometimes I would just work through lunch. But towards the end, I really wanted to get that six hours of like just straight, no phone, no distractions, productivity to make sure that I'd be prepared for the real thing. Were you doing the questions timed and random as well? Or were you doing like tutor mode and specific topics? I was doing it timed and random from the beginning. And then you had mentioned, I think, six hours of UWorld and eight hours of video resources. Was that the entire day? So you'd spend... 14 hours a day studying? Or was this like one day of UWorld and one day of video resources? Or how would you balance that? So my average, so actually, uh, I guess like I clocked in and clocked out, was shooting for an average of 10 hours per day, but I ended up hitting about nine hours per day of productivity. But yes, it was six hours every single day of UWorld questions. That was almost non-changing, just because that's how long it took me to do and review questions. But I was watching the eight hours of video on two or three times speed. So usually that was between three hours and four hours of actual video time because I was watching it sped up. Did you take any NBME? Yes. So I took all of them. And I really think that that was one of the things that was really high yield for me was just doing as many questions as possible. And I do not think that you'll find questions like the NBME questions in any of the question banks because they're just so different. I can actually go over each one if you want to and what I thought about each of them, I guess you could say. Yeah, we'd love to hear your assessment and when you took it, like if you took that during dedicated or, or prior to that. So all of these were during dedicated. I'll be honest. So the first week I was doing UWord questions, I got really cocky because I was hitting the upper 70s, like 79% correct. And if you use like some Reddit guide or whatever that says you're going to get a 255, well, I ended up taking NBME 20 and got around a 210. It was actually pretty low. And I encourage everyone to take NBME 20 first because it really gets you up and really gets you motivated to do better, I guess you could say scared. So after taking NBME 20, I started waking up at 6.30 every single day and just like studying my butt off. So I would find NBME 20 to be the hardest one there is. NBME 21 was the easiest one I had, and I'm just going to go in order I took it in. NBME 22 was very anatomy heavy, and I thought that that was one of the more difficult ones. NBME 23 was about average. That'd probably be like the middle one. NVMe 24 had a very good curve. So even though I didn't do super well on it on a percentage wise, 
the curve really boosted my grade. And NBME 18 had a very harsh curve. So even though I scored, I think, 15 questions more than NBME 24, I still got the same score. And just if it makes anyone else feel better, I didn't really improve from NBME 21 to NBME 18. So over the course of studying for five weeks, I basically got within plus or minus three points on all the NBMEs except for NBME 20. Yeah, I think it's easy to get discouraged if you're not seeing significant jumps. And it's kind of scary when you start it. And if your score is not where you want it to be, you know, you're like, wow, I only have like a month and I have to get this to shoot up drastically. It's kind of nerve wracking. Yeah. And I'll be honest, people said there's no way you're going to improve, like, let's say more than 20 points. But I would just say that if you work hard, you can definitely improve a lot. I think I improved over 40 points or maybe even 45 points from my first one. In the end, the NBME has underpredicted my score about 15 to 20 points. And I ended up doing UWorld 1 and 2 last because I heard that they have a pretty good curve and it's very motivating for you to take them because it makes you feel good about yourself and good going into the test. And that's all you can really ask of yourself. And UWorld 1 probably overpredicted by about 10-ish points. It's very unreasonable how high the score predicted you. But UWorld 2 was pretty much spot on within two points. And I also took the free 120 and thought the question stems were very short. Normally, I'd finish a U-World block with about 10 minutes left. I was finishing the free 120 with about 30 minutes to spare. And that's just because it was like one-liner questions. I would encourage people to take it at Prometric or wherever, just because I thought it was a very good experience being padded down and scanned for metal objects and being fingerprinted because it really got me used to what I was going to expect on my test today. Interesting. I didn't even know you could do that. So you took the free 120 at the Prometric site. Is that right? Correct. So you can actually take it online for free, but I think it was good for me that I got padded down. I used the lockers. I used the bathroom. I knew how to pause the test, search the reference table, because it seems like every single question bank has a different reference table. Yeah, so I took it there. Wow, that's really cool. Okay, can you tell us how we can do that? If anyone's interested in following suit? Yeah, so whenever you're signed up for the step one, you basically just go underneath your step one ticker on the NBME website and it says practice exam. And you can just sign up. I think it's like 50 to 70 bucks to do it. And at the end of the test, they'll give you a printout of the percentage you got correct. The one thing that is kind of bad is that they don't really tell you which questions you got wrong, like the one at home does. But I just ended up going home later that day and retaking the test, putting in the answers that I put and seeing which ones I got right or wrong. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I'm sure that was helpful to just, you know, get in the routine and kind of feel feel it out. You know, what's this like? Have to get scanned in, have to get scanned out and just kind of putting yourself in that testing situation. That's really cool. I don't think we've heard that before. Yeah, that's smart. I remember leading up to the test, it's kind of freaky. I'm like, are they going to take my lunchbox? What do I eat? And when they pad me down, are they going to yell at me? Like, am I going (laughs) to do something wrong? And am I going to set off alarms by doing something totally on accident? And like those things, they're stressful, you know, like it's a legit test and you're like going into this area. And so I think that's cool that you can kind of take that pressure out of it and just kind of get this dry run and get the practice of doing all those questions. That's awesome. Yep. And I also realized that I needed to wear a jacket. So I brought a jacket for the real test because I was pretty cold during the practice test. So that's one thing to keep in mind on test day is to bring a jacket because you have a locker you can put it in if you don't end up using it. Yeah, that's good to know. If you're cold or uncomfortable in any way, that could certainly impact the way you perform. So that's awesome. So I just want to reiterate something that you said, just so that our listener can really appreciate this as they're preparing for step one. Five weeks out from your test, you did a practice NBME, got around to 210. And then when you actually took the test, you got above a 250. That's incredible. So you went over 40 points, you improved over 40 points 
in five weeks. Correct. So, I mean, to be honest, like a lot of people said, it wasn't really possible, but if you just work hard and you keep track and keep yourself accountable, you can do it. Yeah. I mean, your experience uh, is a testament to that, you know, so that's awesome. Anyone else can do it if they put in the hard work and, you know, really, really bust their tails. It's certainly possible. Congrats on the score. That's really awesome. We're excited for you. Thank you. So before we wrap up, you could tell us how life has been since the test and then any last words of parting advice to someone who is preparing for step one and is kind of, you know, towards the beginning of medical school. It's kind of funny. So uh, the day that the scores came out, it was just awkward because everyone else got their scores on the same day because they had a new question bank and they needed to figure out the percentile. So everyone in my class got their scores the same day. And I had just bought a new car and that got flooded with two feet of water. And it was turning out to be the worst day of my life. But then I got my step one score back and I was pretty happy, to be honest. Since then, I've just been on wards and I'm learning a lot. It's kind of funny because you are one of the smartest people in all the rare diseases that What's considered like high yield for a step one is low yield and rotations, but the attendings will use you because you know all this weird stuff. They asked me, what is the number one cause of thrombocytopenia and what test would you order? And I basically said, oh, you want to look for ITP, TTP, and HUS and all this random rare diseases. And they said, we've never seen any of that in our residency. I guess like this year ever, you just do a HEP panel and an HIV test first. (laughs) So it's very humbling, but yeah, you'll be the smartest person in the lowest yield things for rotations, but it's a lot of fun. It's a lot different. It's a huge transition, but I'm enjoying myself. My advice for anyone taking step would just be to keep organized and keep yourself accountable. Whenever I saw my score dropping on a daily basis, I would just do a half day the next day and get a massage or something. Just know that the NBME is under predict by, in my case, almost 20 points and it'll end up fine in the end. (laughs) And if you start off rough like I did, whether you're an L1 wanting to quit or whether you get a 210 on the first day of your dedicated, then just know that it can get better if you are willing to put in the work. It's great advice. Well, thanks again, Bronson. We really appreciate your time and appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you guys. Hey everyone. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to go to our website at physio.com to check out our growing library of free step one videos. You can also find our physio group on Facebook to join our growing community of students preparing for step one. If you've been enjoying the episodes and have been getting value from the content, here are three easy ways that you can support us. One, press the subscribe button on the platform you're listening to this on. Two, leave us a review. To do that, just go to physio.com slash podcast. Three, find your friends who are in medical school or interested in medical school and tell them about the podcast. Thanks for listening and join us next time.